0: Well, let's turn our Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, for the sixth and last time, we're going to look at verse 14. Uh, That's just because there's so much in the verse, that's all. Let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What is the great prize for which the Christian strives? What is the supreme goal towards which the Christian presses? What is the ultimate blessedness in which the Christian hopes? Well, the contemporary answer to those questions would often appear to be something like this more of the same. More of the same, maybe a bit better, of course, or way better, much better, but the same, only different. Giving the impression that eternity will be the best of this life on steroids, multiplied by infinity. Starting really with the neo-Calvinist movement uh, in the early part of the 20th century, the focus on heavenly hope was replaced by earthly hope. Heaven was relegated to a kind of footnote in an ever-expanding concept of a material, physical, eternal existence. Not that that was all wrong, but Christian hope increasingly became focused on the resurrected body, the renewed earth, and the shalom of the city. To be frank, a lot of what's written about hope these days has more to do with modernity than it has with Christianity. It offers people a hope that is little more than a Christianized form of materialism. And absent from a lot of the accounts of Christian hope today are key Elements of biblical language about hope. The words spiritual and heavenly and the divine are excluded. And yet here in this text, as we've been looking at this and have been made to look at God as we look at the word holiness, because God is the Holy One of Israel. As we've looked at the challenge to live the Christian life, first it's possibility to be holy. Is it possible for us to be holy? And the work of regeneration and the, the gift of, of uh, a habit of life that God gives to us. And then the pursuit of holiness. We now come to look at what the goal is. What is the prize of holiness? The author's been dealing with some this-worldly issues. This verse begins by talking about making peace with people, going out into the world tomorrow and and striving to the very best of our ability to be at peace with people, not to be the provokers, but the peacemakers wherever we go. Pursue holiness. But notice what the incentive is What is the prize, the goal, the ultimate blessedness that we are to seek? Well, it is to see God. Now, he's been giving us this heavenly focus for some time. In chapter 11, we have the faith of our forefathers. And uh, he's described from chapter 10 into 11 what it is that has motivated the people he's writing to, these Hebrews in visiting the prisoners, in caring for the strangers. He's described the forefathers in the faith who lived in tents, who rejected the wealth of Egypt, who lived like strangers in the world. And he's told us why they did this. They did it because they had a better possession. They desired a better country. They looked for a homeland that wasn't here, that they were journeying towards, a heavenly one, he says. And earlier on in Hebrews in chapter 2, what motivated motivated Jesus to, to endure the cross was the joy set before him of bringing many children home to glory with him. And throughout the book, the journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness, having been redeemed, journeying through the wilderness to the promised land has become a model of what the Christian life is. We're journeying in this world, like Israel, in the wilderness. And we're moving, as it were, towards that better country, that better land, that promised land, that heavenly land. Our African-American brothers and sisters knew in their time of slavery this fundamental concept, which they derived from their slave owners very often by going to their churches, but they listened to the message and they grasped the message that enabled them to look beyond the drudgery and humiliation of their circumstances to that day when they would be caught up in the chariot and taken into heaven. That day when they would cross over the Jordan into the promised land. That day when they would walk all over God's heaven. Theirs was a true insight into Christian hope. But what do we think of? What are we to think about then when we think of our Christian hope? And the answer of the Scripture is, that while there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and while we will have resurrected bodies, no question about those things, the object of our hope that is not teased out in the Bible is what's going to happen on that earth and what we're going to do with our bodies. What is the object of hope that is presented in Scripture? It is this. It is a God-centered It is to be our understanding and our longing for God. And that is precisely what our verse points us towards. The visio dei, the beatific vision, seeing God. Uh, I've recommended in the bulletin and on the website, Michael Allen's beautifully written book. And in one of his chapters, he entitles the chapter... In the end, God. In the end, God. That is the Christian hope. It is God. And here we have this expression then that the church has used uh, from early times to describe seeing God. This beatific vision. And the idea of the beatific vision comes, of course, from the Beatitudes. When Jesus in those Beatitudes is describing the blessedness, not the happiness, but the blessedness of life in God, with God and for God. In all the Latin commentaries, for example, uh, there is a very clear distinction made between happiness and blessedness, with various English. Words used to, this, to, to translate what, what that word blessed is uh, means this beatific, this beatitude that Jesus holds out for his people. He's not offering them happiness. Happiness or felicity is something random, something that is produced by happen chance, by, by the, the, good, the good circumstances in your life that cause you to be happy. Beatitude is the condition of God. It is the eternal blessedness of God in himself, within the Trinity. That happy place where God is in himself, it is a God-happy place. Quite different from our happiness, it is not caused by things going well or things being perfect, but in God it is his state of being. He is the blessed God. And when you come to Christ, when you are one of Christ's, you share in the blessedness that is in God himself. That is our great Christian hope. And in that blessedness, the blessedness of the redeemed, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. And in these texts, and others in Scripture. It is the visibility of God, it is the seeing of God that is the sumum bonum of the Christian life, the highest good of the Christian life, an end in itself that at the same time contains all the other goods. All the other good things that are possible to have are to be found in this good thing that is supreme for us as believers. It involves a spiritual communion with God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit that is heightened and extended ultimately as it brings, at the end of the story, brings heaven and earth together. So it's an earthly heaven and a heavenly earth in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the introduction. There are three points the first, of, the first is this, the problem with seeing God. At the nine o'clock, I went down to speak to the children, and I asked them the question, can we see God? They said, no. I said, why can't we see God? Little hand went up. God is a spirit. These kids are very well taught. I said, what does being a spirit mean then? another hand went up. He means he's invisible. I said, that is precisely the answer I was looking for. I can now go back upstairs. In fact, those were the first texts that I had for this section. The problem with seeing God is is that God is spirit, and God is invisible. Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. Exodus tells us, no one can see God and live In John's gospel we're told no one has ever seen God The apostle Paul puts it even more absolutely in 1st Timothy 1 verse 17 uh, in, sorry in 1st Timothy 6 verse 16 whom no one has ever seen or can see Or in 1st Timothy 1 the king of the ages immortal, invisible, the only God. It's built into the language of Scripture. Even when God creates the universe, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 this. He says, for what what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature— have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world in the things that have been perceived. God's invisible attributes. In other words, invisibility is an essential and eternal part of who God is. That's the problem. That's the problem. But what about the promise of seeing God? For as we read the Bible, we discover that from the very beginning, God is the one who sees us. In fact, it's because God sees us that we exist. God began to see us, if you will, looking at it from our perspective, when he first thought of us. In other words, first of all, it's an intellectual seeing. He, he sees Us and our world and our neighbors and our families and our place and our structure of this universe and everything that's necessary for us to exist. God sees it, then makes it. He sees it, then makes it. God sees us first. God is light. And one way to speak about God as creator and sustainer of all is by using the measure, the metaphor of vision. Someone has put it like this. God looks at the world and the result is its existence, its continuing existence in His presence. The Apostle James says that all good things, the world is full of good things. When God created, everything that God made was good. All good things, he says, come down from the Father of lights. The psalmist could say in in Psalm 36, in your light... We see light. The only reason we' are able to understand anything or know anything or know God is because God sees us and God made us. In Revelation chapter 21, we read this in the new creation, "And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb, is the Lamb, the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus and yet it seems that all through all through the history of salvation god has been getting his people ready to see his face so you see in creation paul's argument in romans 1 and the bible's argument throughout is that creation is a theater to display something of the glory of god we see god's size represented in the size of creation. Now, God is bigger than creation, but creation is so big. The universe is so big. It gives us a sense, an idea of the size of God. We see the creativity of God. We see the, the power of God demonstrated in the created order. We see beauty. We see, we see orderliness. We see the sheer magnitude as well as the wonder of all that God has made pointing to his own self-revelation for our sakes. You see it in the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening have God come, and he speaks to them. We don't know how he came. We don't know how, what form they saw, if they saw form, or whether they heard a voice, but God is having communication with Adam and Eve there in Eden. We see it in Moses— when he sees the burning bush and the angel of the Lord appears to him, and he hears God speaking to him from out the burning bush and addressing him, and he is overwhelmed with a sense of the holiness of God as he wants to hide himself from God, lest he see his face. And yet when God approached him, God did not approach him to scare him. In fact, God's approach was out of redeeming love for his own people because he has a mission for Moses to go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, set my people free. And when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, when he led them on the journey through the desert to the promised land, God goes before them, this time in a pillar of of uh, cloud and, and fire. Uh, that settles over the camp of Israel, that goes ahead of the of the people of Israel when they march and when they camp, he, he settles right in the middle of them. God is with them. He's showing Himself to them. Of course, God isn't a pillar of smoke, and He isn't a pillar of fire, but it's a, an indicator that He wants His people to know that He's there with them. And when they settle at Mount Sinai, God's revelation takes a different form. There are thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And the people are terrified when they see the mountain wrapped in smoke because God had descended in the fire. And when the elders of Israel are taken up the mountain, they saw the God of heaven, we read. They saw under his feet, as it were, a sea, a pavement of sapphire stones with uh, absolute, like the heavens, he says, for, for clearness. And they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. When Moses begins to warn, worry whether God is really going to keep his promises, he prays to God, show me your glory. And God says to him, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you, but you can't see my face, for man cannot see my face and live. Or you have Ezekiel with his vision of God. God gives Ezekiel this great vision of God, and he he tells us what he saw. He saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. There's God, and then there's the the glory that he creates to let you know he's there because he's invisible. He creates glory to, to, to identify himself. And then there's A likeness of the glory. And then there's the appearance of the likeness of the glory. And then there's Ezekiel. God is at fourth remove. But he's revealing himself to Ezekiel. And then ultimately, in the incarnation comes the Lord Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. God had said, you have have to have no images. You're not to make any image of any likeness of anything in heaven above or earth beneath when you try to represent God, because none of those will suffice. But there is one human body, one human being, one that is prepared by God himself from all eternity, a body you have prepared for me, says Christ, as he comes into the world. And when God puts skin on in the incarnation, when he is born of the Virgin Mary— He is the image of the invisible God. And yet, seeing Jesus in his humanity was still God disguised and wasn't even as good. Jesus says this. Seeing Jesus as a human being in the days of his flesh Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You're in a far better position. Why? Because the seeing leads to knowledge, and you know more about Jesus. You know more about Jesus. Those children in our Bible school downstairs earlier on today know more about God than was known by those even who were with him in the flesh. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? So it seems as if all of these indicators you see are that God wants to be seen. And ultimately that he will be seen in Christ who is the image of the invisible God. So let's take a moment then to, oh goodness, they shouldn't put this clock here. It's it's criminal. The prospect of seeing God. It begins, really, with with us right now, in that with the eye of faith and with the Holy Scripture, we get an understanding of God's attributes as they're revealed here. But the real prospect held out to us here is of seeing God in heaven. You know of Job in the Old Testament. He says this, "'I know that my Redeemer lives, and after death destroys my body, yet in my flesh I shall see God.'" whom my eyes shall behold, and not another. Paul says, now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face, when we shall know even as we are known. We shall know even as we are known. This is the longing of the hearts of believers before Christ came in Psalm 42, when shall I come and behold the face of God? Or Psalm 11, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. This is the glorious prospect at the end of the book in Revelation 22, they will see his face. But whose face? The face of God. But God doesn't have a face, he's invisible. The Apostle Paul helps us here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Even when he was on earth, when people saw him, they could see something of the Son of God in the actions that he did when he did divine deeds humanly. But ultimately, who do we see when we see Jesus in glory? The answer is we see the triune God. When we see Jesus in glory, we will see the triune God. Jesus, in John chapter 14, has this great conversation with his disciples. He uses the divine name, I am. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We, We think about that evangelistically very often, we preach evangelistic sermons, saying Jesus is the way to God, which is absolutely right. But Jesus is saying something more then. His disciples knew that, because they start asking about the Father. You're saying the Father is the destination. You're saying that what we've been saved for is that we might see the Father. How can we see the Father? Jesus says to them, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him. And have seen him. Whoever has seen me, he goes on to say, has seen the Father. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. The Father doesn't have a body, the Spirit doesn't have a body. But when you see Jesus, you see the Father and the Spirit because the triune God is not made up of parts, not made up of bits. Not made up of people. You can't have the Son without the Father, and the Spirit. When you see Christ glorified, you see—you will see the Triune God. He is the image, the only image of the invisible God. God is God all the way through. Jesus is God all the way through. The Father is God all the way through. The Spirit is God all the way through. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are God all the way through. There is no more of God in the Trinity than there is in the Son, or in the Spirit, or the Father. All of God is in the Son. All of God is in the Spirit All of God is in the Father. All of God is in the Trinity. That's the reality. When you see the Son, you see the Trinity. Jesus' humanity is the instrument by which we will see the invisible Father, Son, and Spirit. You say, invisible Son? Yes. When Jesus was on earth... He was both invisible and visible. As God, he was invisible. As God, he's everywhere. There is no place where he is not. He's visible in his humanity and is only in one place at one time. But he's both invisible and visible. That's sometimes called the extra Calvinicum. Uh, Ask Derek Barson if you want to know what that means. So here's the thing. The infinite, immense, immaterial, invisible Trinity has revealed itself to us supremely in the humanity of the eternal Son. And the beatific vision is to see in the humanity of Jesus, the divinity of God And I have no idea what that will look like. It will not be an ocular experience. Thomas Aquinas uh, wisely talks about it as an intellectual experience. The, the reason he does that is that he's bringing together a, a clear thread that you may have already noticed, in that very often when we, to, we, we hear, read about, Seeing God, we also read about knowing God. The the knowing God comes upon the seeing of God. There is this knowledge aspect. To see him will be to know him. We will know even also as we are known. Our knowledge will be filled up to the brim. We will see him as he is. John Owen puts it like this, our vision will be immediate, direct, intuitive, and therefore it will be steady, even, and constant. We will see the divinity of God in the glorified humanity of Jesus. That's what he prayed for. In John 17, he said, may I I pray for them you've given me that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In 1 John chapter 3, there's a lovely little little expression. Beloved, we are God's children now, and so we are. And what we will be has not appeared. That is, it's not apparent yet what we're going to be, what God is going to do with us. They look at us and they still see us very human, very fallible, frail. But when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. In other words, the seeing of God is going to transform us, it's going to change us. It will give us sight that we did not have. Our sight is limited to the apparatus of the eye. When we die, our spirits go immediately into the presence of God. Our spirits are immediately enabled by God to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At that moment, every delight will be satisfied. Every pleasure will be heightened. Every question will be answered. All the dark spaces that we take with us, as it were, from this world into the next world, will be illumined by the light of the glory of God. So intense, so immense, a capacity to see far more, to take in more, than we can take in as we are now in in our human nature, unglorified at that moment. That does not mean we will see all of God. It does not mean we will see into the essence of God, but we will see God in a way that we've never seen Him before, and that 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 knowledge of God will expand and increase. That sight of God will go on expanding and and being exceeded for all eternity, and we will still not be able ever to fathom all of God. But as we, the more we press in, the more glories will appear. The more. Beauty will appear, the more pleasure will be given, the more satisfaction will be found. And we will be changed from one degree of glory into another. The Visio Deo Dei is a transforming vision. We will be like Him. Right now, we're being changed from one degree of glory into another but then we will be like him. And Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans says, some rays and beams of God's glory will shine into us. We will be glorified in a way proper to us as creatures, but we will share something of the glory of God. We enter into the picture. When I was a little boy, I used to… Sneak out the house, take a bus into Glasgow, which was the nearest big city, <clears throat> and I would walk across the town to the art gallery. Go into the art gallery, go up to the—I like the the, uh, the Dutch masters; had some really great pieces there, and some of the French impressionists. And I would sit on the bench and look at these pictures. Some of them just were overwhelming, overwhelming in their beauty depth. And as a little boy looking at these, those places that were being represented by the artist, you wanted to be in there. You wanted to see what that was like, what that beautiful picture represented. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be where the artist was looking when he painted the picture? Here's the wonder of the beatific vision that when we see God, we are going to be able to enter into something of the picture. We enter into. We are glorified. There's a language that you find in Romans 8 and elsewhere. Glorified. God's glory will transform us. We will, here's a word that's a risky one to use, we will be deified, godded, Oh, in a measure, suitable for creatures. Not God, absolutely. But something of God will be given to us. Eternal life is the life of God. The glory of God is the glory of God, and yet we're to be glorified. We're to be given eternal life. We get to be in the picture. And every moment... Fresh delights will overtake us. We shall see God so as to love him. And so to love him as to be filled with him. And we shall not only just behold his beauty, that beauty, we shall enter into that beauty, Thomas Watson says. Enter into the joy of your Lord. In your light we shall see light. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The sight of God will be infinitely refreshing, appealing, nourishing, ravishing, satisfying, fulfilling, transforming immediately. That's our destiny. Words cannot express it. We falter at language to describe what it is like, but to see God... Seems to be in the Bible the best promise that you could ever be given. I mean, living in a new earth with new bodies and all the rest of it, that sounds great, but let me tell you this that is eclipsed by a billion suns in splendor to the first sight of God in Christ in glory. That's the goal. That's the prize. That's the destination. And in that first moment, in that first sight, every tear wiped away. Every doubt cleared up. Every question answered. Every sigh dismissed. All pain eliminated. Death over. Life, 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 light, 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 pleasure, forevermore. We shall know, even also as we are known. Face to face, with Christ my Savior, face to face, what shall it be when, with rapture, we behold Him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Let's pray. We pray that you would, in your mercy, open our eyes a little bit more today by your word. That we might see just a bit more deeply in your word what our hope is, the hope of glory, the hope of seeing the invisible. And may that, Lord, Help us this week to see beyond the things that happen, the things on our TV screens, the sights that dazzle, the sights that break our hearts, and that we would reserve our minds for those things that we shall one day see, and see for eternity. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.